On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Um, I've been saying for the last few weeks, and this is a regular theme maybe for July and August papers, that there's always a lot of variety on some of the front pages. Not so much variety on today's Sunday pages. They're all broadly of a similar theme. So I'm going to very quickly run through the stories which are not on that theme. Uh, the Business Post tells us that election candidates could be forced to disclose their property and business interests before running for public office in future as part of a major overhaul of the country's ethics legislation. The Sunday Times tells us that the number of under-18s charged with sexual offences in Ireland has doubled in the past decade and a new charity helping child victims of sex assaults has revealed that nearly a quarter of cases it handles uh, involves a juvenile also being the accused. Um, the Sun Independent tells us that a Fine Gael TD has had a pub and adjoining house he owned seized and sold off by a so-called vulture fund over the non-repayment of a €300,000 loan from AIB. That's Kieran Cannon, uh, who was a junior minister in the Department of Foreign Affairs in the last government. He is a TD for Galway East. He says that his business was simply one of many rural pubs that didn't survive. Other than those stories, it is pretty much wall-to-wall energy uh, one way or another. Um, Starting with the Business Post, which tells us that the government is now coming under severe pressure to take control of the unfolding energy crisis amid increased supply fears and spiralling price rises for both businesses and consumers. Michael McGrath has admitted to the Business Post that the crisis is now threatening the viability of many companies, which comes as a series of small business groups are pleading with the government to introduce some form of of emergency supports for SMEs to tackle the spiralling cost of energy. Yet another issue that now has to be dealt with uh, in next month's budget, now just a little over four weeks away. Um, the front page of the Sunday Times tells us that there is a clash within the coalition about the idea of a windfall tax on energy companies. Fine Gael, we are told, is against imposing a windfall tax because it is concerned that it could scare off investors, even as consumers are warned to expect their bills to increase further over the coming weeks due to supply shortages. The Green Party, we are told, is in favour of a windfall tax, similar to the one implemented in the UK in May uh, given that energy companies are continuing to profit from rising prices Boris Johnson placed a 25% levy on profits made by companies extracting UK oil and gas early this year the Treasury in the UK reckons that could raise around 5 billion euro but a Fine Gael source tells even more today in the Sunday Times that if you burn investors you get less investment next time uh, according to one senior Fine Gael figure they said that we need more investment in the new renewables and gas power gri- plants and in the grid it's the law of unintended consequences a well-designed windfall tax on genuine unexpected windfall profits would probably avoid that though which suggests that maybe there is some scope for it which brings us to the front page of the Sunday Independent which tells us that the government is going to introduce what will amount to a windfall tax but it says it will be a token windfall tax on massively in-profit energy companies. Revenue from the tax is expected only to raise around €100 million, which would reduce household electricity or gas bills by an estimated €18 per year. The government is anxious not to burn energy companies amid and possibly deter them from investing in much-needed infrastructure projects here, but it does believe that a windfall tax on some companies could be popular with the public and it tends to press ahead with the token measure. Token is in inverted commas uh, in their own uh, copy there, which maybe suggests something about Um, how much they are putting, uh, how much stock they're putting in it or not. Um, And on energy and security of energy and the prospect of blackouts, the Mail on Sunday today leads uh, with news that a cabinet subcommittee on which Micheál Martin sits was warned more than a year ago about the threat to the company, uh, the country's electricity supplies, uh, according to the Mail on Sunday today. This revelation contradicts claims made by Micheál Martin this week about the lack of an early warning system for power shortages and the threat of blackouts. On Monday, Micheál Martin claimed that he and his cabinet colleagues were caught unawares by the shortage of electricity supplies, which prompted three separate amber alerts in the space of a fortnight. But the Mail on Sunday has learned that the government was repeatedly warned about threats to Ireland's electricity security since it came to power more than two years ago. They've obtained documents under Freedom of Information 
Commission, which reveals that Eamon Ryan was briefed about this possible threat shortly after taking office in June 2020 and that he did raise it at a Cabinet subcommittee in the early part of last year, which would appear to undermine the argument by many other ministers that they are now somewhat being taken aback by the prospect of there being possible blackouts uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, that is your quick whistle-stop tour of what is on the front pages of this morning's papers. We are joined in studio by Tanya Ward, who's the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, and by Gina London, who is a former CNN correspondent and now a communication strategist and trainer. And we were just clarifying before we came on air, Gina, you are neither you are <laughs> neither a wildcat nor a cornhusker. Proud American, part of the Big Ten Conference, went yeah. to Indiana University, where they have a horrible football team. Sorry, but did <laughs> wow. not go. Yeah, Vote of confidence for the Hoosiers there. What can I say? Good basketball team, but yeah, didn't wasn't a uh, wasn't a wildcat, wasn't a husker. But I did go to an event. Didn't go to the game yesterday, so I didn't get the free beer. But I did go to a um, reception the night before for the Nebraskans, actually, and the governor was there and a number of other business people. So it's a big event. People come from all over to this uh, thing. And I, I've got a buddy from Hawaii wow. who's coming for next year's game and is already looking into like 13 of them and where they're going to book and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So yeah, it's a big deal. Well, they need to book the accommodation this far in That's advance it. given how expensive it is. <laughs> and exactly the, the, only, right. the only reason I wasn't going to get, get too <laughs> knee deep into the Wildcats win 31-28 yesterday at the Aviva Stadium, but I was only asking because given that there ended up being free beer at the game, yeah. I just wanted to check. <laughs> I'm, whether... I'm clear this morning. Okay, right. I'm, that, I'm coherent. That was, I'm, that, I'm not foggy. That was all we wanted to check. For people who didn't catch that, by the way, there was an internet outage at the yeah. Aviva Stadium yesterday. So they decided they, they weren't able to take any payments at any of the payment points. And they decided that because they couldn't take any payments, rather than merely not selling anything, they decided that they would just give the stuff out for nothing. Yeah. Which meant that they had 50,000 people at a college football game with free beer. So win or lose, everybody had a good time. Well, it's, it's an interesting approach to minimum unit pricing. Uh, I will say that much. Uh, anyway, Gina and Tanya are with us to discuss uh, everything that's in the papers. And it is very difficult, Tanya, to get away from those myriad energy headlines, the bit about uh, businesses being under threat, the bit about a windfall tax, whether it's being debated or rebuffed or advocated, whether it will be significant or whether it will be token. Um, there's an awful lot there. Where would you like to start this morning? Yeah, I suppose I, I'd love to start at the beginning. I think the thing that really stands out for me is that this was this was being warned in, in 2020 that we had an over-reliance on, on gas and this is going to cause a major problem for the economy in future years. And lo and behold, the Ukraine war happened. <laughs> uh, uh, and there's no doubt it's going to have a massive effect on us because we're very reliant on gas from uh, the UK. We're very reliant on the, who are also really reliant on gas from, from the continent. So, I mean, the, I think there's big questions to be asked there how, that, how we didn't deal with this uh, sooner but I suppose I am concerned that we're not thinking more radically about how we deal with the energy crisis because obviously what hits the headlines you know it's what the public wants is a tax on the massive profits being made by energy companies and it's one of the big things with this cost of living crisis I think that is frustrating everyone is that you know some companies and organisations use it as an opportunity to raise their prices Mm. and they're making very good profits as a result but they're not raising the salaries of people working in their company etc. I think that's something that the public is really angry about. So seeing kind of, um, you know, attacks being levied on these energy companies who are making big profits, people really want to see that happen. I would love to see, though, a, a talk about actually having price controls on energy. I think that's something where we need to ha- have a bigger discussion about because countries that have been most successful with dealing with the cost of living, it's very hard to deal with it because mm. there's lots of different things going on contributing to it. But energy has a big effect. Yes, you know, it affects the price of food, it affects heating, it affects businesses. Businesses can't run the run the power, they can't make their profits, etc. Um, and countries that have been most successful in addressing this have had price controls 
controls and France is a very good example of that. And that's not why this discussion is. I mean, they're talking about tariffs on the big energy users like Intel. Mm. You know, yes. they're going to pay a tariff that's going to result in 500 million. We'll redistribute that. But at the same time, they're talking about a fund to help companies uh, dealing with the with, with, with the price increase of energy. And I just wonder, is there another discussion? What about price controls? Why is that not being mooted? Um, and, and, you know, I, I, did, I did pick up the issue around Fianna Gael saying, you know, having any restrictions, introducing um, a tariff on profits, etc. Yeah. might discourage investments in this space. But this is a once off unprecedented event that we're dealing with. Is that really true? And and could you not, let's say, you know, encourage encourage these companies to invest in the renewables and the things that we want to see our country moving towards? But I suppose the big thing, the big take home of this is we are not sufficient, mm. you know, as a country yeah. when it comes to our energy production. We're too reliant on our relations with the UK and, and, and other parts of Europe. And that's something that has to be dealt with. Uh, just to bring people up to speed, by the way, you mentioned the idea of some energy users having to pay higher tariffs. That is mentioned uh, within that front page story on the Business Post, which says that there are going to be around 2,000 large businesses who will be hit with higher tariffs from October. They're thought to, est- uh, to raise about 100 million euro in revenue through higher tariffs from them. Um, around half of that money will come from only 22 large companies like Intel in Leakslip, like Organisch Illumina uh, in Limerick and also some of the larger uh, data centres which are larger users. Um, on the idea of, of price caps, I've heard this being advocated by people for profit and labour and they, they both point out that maybe there's, there's clauses in consumer law that are already there. But they have price caps in Britain and they keep having to raise the cap because the raw materials are becoming so expensive that you end up having to keep raising the cap because otherwise the companies themselves would simply go out of business. Now, I don't know how, how true or how credible that threat might be given the companies are still making pretty significant profits. Yeah. But if you have a price cap, do you not then ultimately run into the issue where companies will claim they can't make it viable to provide energy? I mean, you, that cap? No doubt you can create exceptions in relation to this. But if, if you bring this down to the experience of people at home, ordinary people are looking at these headlines, what they're thinking is fear, basically. There's people at home thinking, I'm going to have to switch off the power. There's older people, particularly those ones living on their own, that do really uh, experience income adequacy. They're going to be switching the power off over the winter months. There's families where children are going to be going to bed with extra duvets and coats on their pillows. I mean, a lot of people have had this experience, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago in Ireland. They remember having a house with no central heating and what what that was like. People often, you know, went into one room to get through it Mm. overnight over those those winter months. That's actually what people are going to have to live through if they don't deal with the, the cost of energy. For people and alongside that is you know people will not have as much food on the table because mm. all the studies show SVP have done it I mean all the researchers have done it what they do is they pay their mortgage they pay their rent they pay their energy bills and then what happens is they scrimp on the food bill yeah. so it's a pretty miserable existence if you're a child living through that it's a pretty miserable existence if you're an older person and I think the other thing people are really concerned about and you're starting to see it creeping out in the news is people are worried about death they're worried about older mm. people Mm. Uh, at home on their own who don't switch on the power. I might just come back to, to you in a, a couple of minutes time about the impact on kids but Gina um, it's kind of difficult to even to know where to start because well, there's so many a, well, I, concerns. That's it. There's so many facets to this and one of the things I was thinking as Tanya was, was unpacking it was the idea that 
the crisis and the chronic problem. And there's always this crisis and now we got to worry about it and all these things on the winter's looming all the month and mm. oh my gosh, and what's, what's industry going to do and what are the consumers going to do, the people with the duvets? And yet the panicking politicians are also looking at it with the mindset, okay, transition for the for us is happening in December. We've got, well, how will that go? What's going to happen with the, is there going to be another election then? How's that? So we've got to, they've always got to balance out. But when you look at a comprehensive plan that is long-term so that you don't go from chronic to crisis, chronic to crisis. I mean, yes, the invasion in Ukraine is six months on now, and that had a, has an incredible impact, and the world is struggling with the global energy prices, and Europe in particular is being hard hit because 40% of the exports for gas supplies come from Russia. But that's the question of how do we integrate something, and how do we look to a comprehensive plan so we can get the ways to refill the gas storage during the summer so that we can coast more during the winter. And it's a race now to fill those tanks. Mm. And it's interesting, I thought, to compare what some of the other countries are doing. For instance, Italy's getting gas from Algeria. Other nations are turning to Azerbaijan, Norway, and Qatar. Germany is looking to deal with Canada and building five new floating liquefied natural gas terminals. Spain's approving energy conservation plans just this week. They've got new rules around corporate usage of heat and air conditioning. France is Tanya was mentioning France, they're issuing fines to stores that happen to use AC and leave their doors open. So there's a time to get replacement and conservation plans in a comprehensive mm. way to address the chronic problem and not just try to be reactive in this mm. crisis. Not, not to dismiss any of what you've just said, but sometimes I think that we, we see what's being done in other countries, like, you know, hyper tariffs and everything else. And we, we because we don't see Ireland listed in, in countries like that, that we don't think we're doing anything. But if, if there was someone else having this conversation in another country, would the idea of not having a higher uh, electricity tariff on industrial users so as to save stuff for the rest of us, would that not also be included in the it, same it, list it as a comprehensive well could action? be. Interestingly, it wasn't in the in the ex- expansive article that I found that information mm-hmm. on, but it is one of those things. Back to the idea of how do you bring all these these integrate spokes together in a political landscape, which of course everything does operate under. Mm. Let's not pretend it doesn't. Bringing in IBEC, which is talking about hey, we want more clarity around these proposed emergency tariffs that you guys mentioned. Bringing them in in the initial parts of the conversation so that they aren't forced to be reactive and then potentially undermine things as they're going on. That's a good communication policy to get all those stakeholders brought in at the beginning. Talk to consumer groups, talk to child advocacy groups, talk to elderly groups at the beginning. And I think that's a lot of times where policy doesn't connect with the stakeholders early Mm. enough on. And then you get into these easy headlines that are not giving the complexity of what's behind it. Uh, we already have a tweet from um, Neil. Who I think today's reporting, I think, is the first time that I've seen a real admission from government that there are actually businesses whose own viability now is under threat from this. Uh, Neil uh, tweets in to say that I've got a small business, 50 employees, energy bill this year, 600,000 euro. Next year, it'll be greater than 2 million euro. Wow. Trying to square that circle is not possible without some government intervention, uh, which is just a, one small little first-hand anecdote of some of the... Um, difficulties a lot of businesses are going to be facing. Yeah, real and, people being hit real hard. Well, and uh, it's another thing, open question to either of you, that the government has to try and accommodate now in a budget which seems to have a greater shopping list by the day just as time to compile it runs short. 
And, and you know, the other problem is, and this is like from my organisation's perspective, you have to keep your windows open because of COVID. right? So your energy bills are going to be higher because you're trying to protect your staff and you're trying to, you know, from 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 the spread of COVID in, in, in the winter season. So mm. there, there's there's uh, there's a much bigger draw, I think, on, on there's, there are a lot of different factors actually contributing to this energy crisis um, at the moment. But I think it is concerning the piece around businesses saying they're not going to be viable. Um, you're going to have B&Bs and the, B, the Business Post published some different businesses saying what they're going to do. They're saying, look, we just won't open for the winter months. Mm. There's no point. We can't afford to actually pay the bills over that period. And that's going to produce a, a lower, let's say, tax take. It's going to uh, mean there's less people in employment. Um, so it's going to have a knock-on effect on the economy. Um, and I think what we're going to end up, what I, I hope doesn't happen, but this is something that might be mooted, is where we're going to be told you're going to have to work at home for parts of the for parts of the year to actually protect the, 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 ener- the energy provision that we have mm. at the minute. I think that's all on the horizon. Uh, which is a, a pretty um, sobering idea. Um, there's a lot in today's papers about, I don't know whether we want to get too much into the... At home uh, under a duvet is basically what people are going to be <laughs> working well, at their laptop. Need, and then they need to <laughs> offset support for their for their own usage from, yeah. their, from their company yeah. because yeah. That's part, they're, they're supporting the company with their own electricity yeah. then. Yeah. So that needs to be taken into consideration, which also goes back to the guy who tweeted in because then he's essentially going to be, he should be shouldering a little bit of the payment for his employees if yeah. it's possible. Not yeah. not everybody yeah. can work from home. Uh, somebody else says that if it is true that this government was warned about the threat to energy supply a year ago, that this cannot be described as anything but inept by two parties in particular that have taken turns at various minnows to be in every government since 1939, which of course, <laughs> which, which they have. Um, I suppose one thing is that it's, it kind of brings us into the morass of different players that there are because a lot of people might even their eyes could glaze over by the fact that there is the the regulator or the, the commission for the regulation of utilities and then there's also Electric Ireland but there's also ESB networks and that, that there almost seems to be this kind of hodgepodge of different people that are involved in the idea of making sure that you literally have enough power for the country yeah, and so then when when we if it turns out that we may not have that people will be like well which one of these many people do I point to? <laughs> exactly that's one of the actually points that's raised in the Business Post article where it talks about how industry sources have expressed frustration of what they claim to be as a mismatch among all the different actions among all the different players and that is exactly right then and there could be a situation of who's going to take a joined up responsibility for this because you inevitably want that someone wants there to be a scapegoat if it doesn't work out the way they like mm. so that's interesting because it, that calls for real cooperation real conjoined effort which doesn't always happen in a political environment let's face it Um, on the idea of a windfall tax we'll get to a break in a couple of minutes but just wanted to to send this out for a minute I'm not sure this is an open question for either of the two of you Um, which is worse the idea of not having or not even attempting or being seen not to consider a windfall tax or to implement one which is seen as so tokenistic that it almost seems insulting because it raises so little and makes so little of an impact I think it's the I think it's the former. You've got to, I think you, I think you've got to impl, 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 whichever one of the two you'd you get. Rather, I think you should implement a, something a, a, as a, a pilot. crappy meaningless tax than none at all. No wait. Yes, yes. But don't call the crappy meaningless tax because that's bad messaging. <laughs> <Okay>. Sorry. <Kat>. <laughs> <laughs> call well, it call it a pilot, call it a trial, yeah. call it, and, and again get the people involved. See if you can get yeah. see if you can get the organizations to say we'll 
even like back when we were talking about the energy consumption reduction rates and you're with the agriculture sector, are we going to go 28, 22? Let's have a discussion about it and try to find something. I think something is always better than nothing. Shaking your hand, your head yeah. and say, we can't okay, do well, it. I, I'm sure the Tangy, the government wouldn't want to, to, to concede in its own messaging that it would be a crappy, pointless <laughs> uh, windfall utility Catchy tax. phrase. Uh, but... <laughs> If it if it is only going to possibly reap as much as a hundred million euro, which which the Sunday Dependent seems to think is already the arithmetic that's built in, yeah. if that's only the equivalent of getting back or raising eighteen euro off every household, it doesn't matter how you varnish it. People are going to see it as crappy and pointless. There are, I mean, it's not a lot of money, but a hundred million is, you know, will fund part of a hospital. You know, it'll, it'll go, it'll go somewhere. But <laughs> an increasingly small part of a hospital. I know, yeah, I know. I was just going to say, like, that wasn't the smartest point, was it? Um, <laughs> given the hospital costs. But anyway, I think the thing I'd love to know, um, and this is where, you know, if you had an economist here at the table, they might be able to say, do windfall tax on exceptional profits help with changing behaviours of companies and organisations? Because it's one of the big problems when, when people are living through these inflationary periods is companies jumping on the bandwagon, price price gauging and making these big exceptional profits. And the energy industry, you know, has a history of making exceptional profits. Mm. And I just wonder, is there something there that might be useful to try and discourage that kind of practice and the impact? So it would m- minimize the impact on the consumer and on, on business and on, on, on companies. That's my something I wonder is, about. Sorry, my experience has been with legislation around education or legislation that the industries will always argue for education like if just improve Mm. interest don't 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 restrict us don't penalize us incentivize us but the fact of it is until you regulate until you give a penalty there isn't a change of behavior normally that the incentivized idea just doesn't work Um, we of course have no economists around the table but if any economists or behavioural scientists do want to get in touch 53106 <laughs> or on the record NT do do let us know whether, whether windfall taxes actually have any history of being used to adjust behaviour or whether it would be something of, a, of window dressing that doesn't really address the underlying problem um, there are any number of Trojan puns in today's papers about the fall of Troy or the siege <laughs> of Troy yeah, or the yeah. burning of Troy and we're going to get into all of that with uh, Tanya and Gina when we're back after this um, Tanya, Tanya mentioned something in the first part which a tweeter has taken some issue with um, about the idea that in the middle of an energy crisis and the amount that it's costing to heat offices and the likes um, that the windows are still open because of COVID and um, it was discussed by this tweeter and indeed by some other people around the studio wondering whether that was still actually considered necessary in this day and age but you were talking us through some of your precautions and actually you've been told it has been Yeah, yeah, it's still the public health advice you know, the key we, we, we've had the health and safety people in give us an order, tell us what we need to do. And they said, keep your windows open, the most important way to protect the staff and make sure they don't come in with any symptoms of anything. And and, and it's worked. <laughs> you know, it's worked. We've had people who have COVID and the staff haven't gotten it. And, you know, a lot of people people will have companies and staff where they either have vulnerable health conditions or they've got family members of vulnerable health conditions. So they'll be trying to maintain those kind of standards uh, going forward. Yeah, and despite what the Twitter folks say about what she said, it does illustrate the complexity that business leaders and business owners and people working in offices have to deal with when they're trying to negotiate where their their health concerns are for their teams and the energy prices that they have to pay. And it's a complex issue from all yeah. all 
facets. Um, so I suppose that even though it, it might now be seen as commonplace or even in classrooms, for example, that it may not be seen as necessary to keep the windows yeah. open at all anymore, that from an occupational health perspective, that the you, you might have yeah. someone who, who comes along if you get pursued because someone got sick in your office. Then That's it. Told, and well, and, and the they, say, they say you have to do it on a case by case basis. You know, you have to assess your staff's health needs and try and work out what's the best what's the course of action. And of course, in, in any kind of good organisation, you consult with the team, you work out what's best and that's what the team want to do. And so that's what we do. Um, Rory, I don't know whether Rory is an economist or any kind of other qualification, but he has weighed in on the idea of a windfall tax. He says that we have had a banking levy on profits for most of the last 20 years. Has the industry mindset changed in the meantime? Uh, he says rhetorically, but a nice political risk free <laughs> fundraising uh, all the same uh, is Rory's assessment. Uh, thank you, Rory, for your text. On the record, NT is our hashtag or 53106, the number uh, for your comments. I mentioned the sheer breadth of Trojan puns. Uh, there's also a nice effort in the business post, which uh, tells the whole thing about a Troy. Uh, there's also some very nice artwork in the Sunday Times where the TD for Long for Westmead has been made up um, like an extra from the Colin Farrell movie about Troy and Helen of, uh, which is just tremendous artwork. Uh, but there's an awful lot obviously written about Robert Troy, the downfall of the now departed junior minister, about the whole saga, about property disclosures and some of the issues with um, our laws on public ethics and the requirements of TDs to disclose their private interests. Um, Gina, where do you want to start? Well, you know, I was actually in, I was out of the country for a lot of last week in London working with some teams there. So I actually missed a lot of the drip feed of this story as it sort of was a, a little snowball and it became a bigger snowball and took in a little avalanche and then took away his, his ministry yeah. as part of it. Does and that I actually thought, change? Sorry to interrupt you. Does that change the way that you perceive a story? Because sometimes if you are here and you're covering the news cycle and then every little bit just seems like an elongated. it does. Is it more more or less damaging if you just get the whole lot in a flood the way that you did? I, well, you look at it from a different perspective. So it depends on what your perspective is. And for me, of course, coming from the United States, where there's a lot of scandals that sometimes sweep away a politician, sometimes a smaller politician or a smaller scandal sweeps away a politician and a larger scandal. Let's talk Mar-a-Lago and all the different filings and all the different things that haven't come through with the former president of the United States. I feel like as I was watching this one and going, wait, what happened? He just he failed to disclose something. And now he's not, he he resigned his, his position as, as minister. To me, this appears to have been a perfect storm of poor messaging, plus a slower news week. <laughs> just, he didn't handle it well. But now that said, okay, so that's look. Yeah, and it, it was it was. Come it, back to that. You can okay, come back. Yeah. From from all, I've never met Robert Troy. I'm not good with with puns on last names, so I look at it from face value. Did he fail? Because he, he didn't understand how the regulations were. Did he do it for then another report? Another things came out. Did he need to resign? He did. So we don't need to parse that. What I think is interesting, though, too, is that, yes, let's shore up how business interests are disclosed. And if this is what Michael McGraw is preparing to do, which, by the way, kudos to him as uh, he's got two mentions on the front page of the Business Post yeah. in two different I, articles. I think so there's a, there's a third that, one inside as well. It's not, a man with a long not, not, right not, now. Too, not too shabby yeah. for, the, for the Minister of Public Expenditure. But back to the former Minister mm. of State. Look, it's, it's a controversy, clearly. But it does demonstrate the need to make things very clear. And it de- demonstrates the need to be consistent mm. with all the politicians on what they file, when they file, things like that. Like back over in the United States, Trump got a whole... He went his entire presidency with never showing his taxes. Well, guess what? It's not legally required. Mm. So let's get some clarity around what's legally required, make it clear. Mm. And if this poor guy was a uh, yeah. a 
a sacrificial lamb for okay. the need to do uh, that? That's uh, something else. Gonna, you you gonna, don't gonna, think he's quite as, uh, as I'm, I'm going to come back to the sacrificial lamb bit or, or whether <laughs> whether at a different time of year this might have played out a little bit differently. But Tanya, I know that you wanted to single out yeah. the particular weakness of Sippo and not necessarily yeah. of its own design, but rather yeah. just how weak yeah. the, the, the watchdog is. Yeah, and, and I mean, and, and ju- just to just contribute what, what, what Gina was saying, the other thing I think what was significant this week is, you know, the housing stats, right? <laughs> the highest numbers of people homeless now in the state and some of the coverage while it pulls up is some of the advocacy uh, that uh, Troy did, you know, as minister, because one of the things he, he advocated for, you know, I, 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 there was only one that really jumped off the page. And it was when uh, during 2020, uh, during the, the COVID lockdowns, there was a moratorium on evictions and he was, you know, campaigning. He, he asked, he advocated against that. Mm. And that was the most effective measure in 2020 keeping people in their homes there was a there was a significant fall mm. in homelessness because of that measure so I was like ah. but I, I think the public is going to draw an inference you know there's an issue obviously in the way filings are done and making sure you comply with the rules and there's issues about the lack of penalties if we don't do that but the other yeah, thing the, the penalty for not disclosing something yeah. is that you're made to go back and disclose it yeah 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 which isn't but, much of a penalty yeah but the other thing is it's, it's about transparency right so it's about being able to see what a politician is advocating for on your behalf. And and what's really striking is, you know, send it a year to the next year before mm. you find out. Sure, they could have been yeah. doing X, Y and Z well, in this, the previous this, this year. This is a penny that dropped for me last <laughs> yeah. week because we were talk- talking about this last week on, on this slot and, and the penny dropped that because you were only... Robert Troy's contention was that he thought this was basically a snapshot in time. You didn't have to disclose what you bought and sold over the course of the year. It was just what you have on New Year's Eve. And he reached that conclusion because you were only asked to, to fill out these forms yeah. once oh, a year, every, yeah. every January or February. Um, which then highlighted the fact that if you if you were to buy and sell a property over the course of the year or you could buy a house on January the 2nd and sell it on December the 30th or you could buy shares or you could become a company director or whatever um, even if you did have to disclose it live as it were you would only be filing it after your interest had ended. Yeah. So the idea of this being a register where yeah. at least people know what might be on your mind or what else might be influencing your thoughts yeah. is pointless. Yeah. If, if if even if you comply with all the rules, you're only disclosing an interest possibly long after well, it's gone. Look, yeah. lo- loopholes are made to be manipulated and exploited. Mm. I mean, I'd love to say well, it weren't, but let's be honest. The, the 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 balance here is integrity, transparency, and getting away with something for a while because you think you can and you've got some sort of cover for it. I mean, pick your politician in the United States who does the way they do on their taxes and their disclosures and mm. then the SEC's got all of them the fine and the election campaign election commission's got all these sorts of rules but then there's the wiggle room around the rules and until you get caught you keep going the way you go and you don't disclose all the different things that you're husband's invested in Nancy Pelosi because you're not invested in it but he is I yeah. mean, those types of things happen all the time we have I'm that here too actually because some, some TDs disclose their family home because they're like well it's a it's a house I own it's my family home but some others don't because yeah. you're not required to disclose something if you co-own it with a spouse so some TDs like Michal Martin is, is known to have three houses he's got a holiday home and he's got another family home and none of them are disclosed because they're all jointly with other people so his listing says he has no property which isn't which is really not true yeah. wholly accurate um, I mean, but, yeah. but he's in keeping with all of his, his obligations in doing it um, I'm, not ju- I'm, not the, I'm not agreeing with this by the way just mm. for the record but, I, but it is how things are often done and, and so it, yeah. the, the, the mm. answer here is shore up the loo- tighten those loo- yeah. loopholes make it clear make, and make it consistently applied yeah, I mean, because the, the thing about this story is, you know, 
Robert Troy isn't responsible for political corruption. This is not a political corruption story. And that's one of the things we've really suffered from in this country. And unfortunately, because of the way his filings were done, it brought attention to his own approaches and his own advocacy, which is effectively mm. the purpose of that transparency register is to see what they are doing on your behalf uh, in the Oireachtas. But I do hope this finally you know, opens up the door for a proper discussion about how our political ethics rules operate in this country. Mm. It's been going on now for 20 years. The system we have at the moment, it's just not fit for purpose. Um, obviously, McGrath's talking about the new ethics legislation. Yeah. If you, Which was already in the works. Before yeah, it was already in the works. Yeah. And if you follow, if you follow the Irish Council of Civil Liberties on Twitter, they've done a tweet really giving you the kind of, the, 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 the line of travel in relation to this legislation and why it's taken so long. It's taken far too long um, to be reformed but like you know we have big political developments ahead of us big tumultuous changes and we have a political system that's not fit for purpose and a lot of the NGOs are watching this to be honest and they're all a bit annoyed because uh, SIPO in the past what it's chosen to do with its powers is actually go after NGOs who've been doing you know bog standard campaigning and, and advocacy work because um, you're not registering or filling your criteria this is what they're as, saying as yeah so, so one of the big faults with Zippo is they can't initiate investigations on their own behalf so what has been happening is if you're doing advocacy the odd time a political opponent will go and report you to Zippo to actually uh, impact <laughs> on your campaign work so then you, you do that really yeah that happens that's, I mean, like, has, has your organisation yeah oh that? yeah that's what happens so why are you ringing me about this bill someone, someone who is opposed yeah. To yeah, children's yeah, rights. yeah, yeah, exactly. And this pr- okay. happens. It's very rare for us because we're the children's rights alliance. Yeah. Most people aren't against what we we're looking for. Um, but that's I, I, I asked them why are you ringing me on this this legislation? We do this every day, yeah. uh, and we got a report. Uh, okay, so someone okay. made a complaint about us on yeah. this particular piece of legislation that you were lobbying and hadn't individually yeah, yeah, itemised yeah, that yeah, act of lobbying. That, that's it. And then I get legal advice, and sister says, no, no, there's a problem with the way the law is is crafted. The purpose of this legislation is is to deal with political corruptions to deal with you know because it does happen in some countries sure. political parties try to manipulate political outcomes by funneling money through NGOs so they're a front for a political party or a political movement yeah. and yeah, it they is some PACs in the United States yeah, yeah it's something that needs to be <laughs> controlled so it is a big problem and, and like even the Asalim Herrick from the ICCL you know retweeting a story like there was a residence association you know so a loose organisation mm. campaigning around the Hellfire Club who got referred to the Gardaí by, by Sippo. Uh, saying you didn't declare your donations and they were just like we're just campaigning against a planning application so what what you found with these kind of cases was organisations who were loose who were new um, a lot of them Mm. have folded as a result or handed back money and the more, I suppose, established organisations are waiting for legal action because it's a prime human rights case. There's, mm. th- and saying that, there's other big holes in it. I mean, one of the things that struck me when the referendum campaign was coming up, um, contact the SIPOs, OK, explain to me what I need to do. Is there any donations? Show me the limit on donations and what you had to do. I said, well, no, we're not going to take any donations, so we don't need to register. And I said, well, what if we sold a building and we put like a million into the campaign? Yeah, yeah. you don't need to register. So I was like, so we could put a million so, so you, you need to disclose donations that are given to you yeah. but if you come up with resources of your own and yeah. pass them on yeah. that's fine. Yeah. And imagine that's you bizarre. could you could really distort 
the outcome of a referendum campaign yeah. if you decided to use your resources in that mm. way. And there are some organisations with big endowments, like they're sitting on big endowments, they're sitting yeah. on property, well, if they could yeah. decide to do that. Well, wasn't there only a story this week about an Irish company that was gifted a 1.65 billion, uh, farm, I think it was a pharmaceutical company, but they were basically gifted it so that they could then sell it off and then use that money to fund uh, a pack yeah. in the United States because it was a way to do it by getting yeah. around some of the taxation requirements. So I, I suppose it does happen and it's just an, another illustration of how things need to change. Um, and Sippo so- has now consistently said we don't have enough power mm. we don't have enough resources there's holes in the legislation yeah. this needs to be addressed mm. uh, It's worth looking at their annual reports actually if anyone ever has a couple of minutes because you go and look at the back pages and it will give you a table of here's all the requests that we've made for strengthening in the laws and the amount of ones that just have the word none written after each one action the government has taken none action the government has taken none it, it's pretty sobering uh, someone has tweeted to say sorry Gavin can we just refer to Robert Troy as sitting TD Robert Troy because he only resigned a single title he's still a TD he's still yeah. a Fianna Fáil party member fair enough he didn't even get a slap on the wrist uh, someone else on a similar point says he gets to keep his TD's gig is 100 grand a year his annual 50k expenses I don't think it's 50k for someone who's living as, as close as that but uh, he's been claiming them for years and allowances if that's the downfall this person says I wouldn't mind a piece of it Going back to um, the time of year, I have to get to a break in a couple of minutes, but going back to the uh, time of year and you suggested, Gene, a couple of minutes ago that maybe this was one of those August stories that you were sort of implying that maybe it, it got more attention than it warranted than the substance justified because I, it was August and nothing else was going on. There are lots of, I mean, I don't have, I don't have, a, this is anecdotal evidence in my, in my limited memory. The idea, though, that there are, and use Ireland as a case or use global politicians as a case. There are stories where you could take these types of omissions, whether or not they were purposefully or strategic or they were, I didn't understand how this stuff works for disclosures, take some sort of equivalent infraction and put it amidst a really, really, really busy news cycle and maybe it doesn't get called out. Maybe maybe they handle the messaging better. The idea is the punishment doesn't always fit the crime when you compare like to like. That's my th- my thought on this one because it didn't seem like it was extra- extraordinarily mm. diabolical. But, uh, and, but uh, even if there's no evidence of, of bad faith though, or any kind of uh, any willfully uh, bad intention, is it not just still so emotive that a TD who is governing is part of a government which is ostensibly trying to address a housing crisis? Oh, and for as it sure, turns out, no, the housing crisis. Himself, the, the, uh, but but is also not in keeping with his obligations a to register tenancies, but yep, also b and to some be of the landlord stuff and some the of the contracts. disclosure yeah. stuff. Absolutely, but I think as you already said earlier, is that the the penalty was to disclose. So his penalty could have been, okay, now I'm, going to, I'm disclosing everything now because I was going to do it and I didn't do it until the timing or whatever. There are other things around where we don't like him because of the kind of landlord that he was or he voted against the eviction thing or he was against that that protection. Those types of things all weighed into what happened. And again, I'm not saying that what he did was, was nothing. Mm. But I also think though that when you think about other types of situations around this and how it's handled. Some politicians are Teflon more than others. Um, do let us know whether you share that assessment that at a different time of year this might not have uh, raised quite the stink that it did. 53106 for your text on the record NT is the hashtag. I wonder what the tone of the uh, the feedback will be. Yes and please yeah, call me a moron on Twitter that'd be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> standard, standard Sunday morning activity really. Uh, there is more in the papers which we'll go through with Gina and Tanya when we're back after this. 
We're going to put Tanya. Uh, we're going to put Gina's thesis to the test. There is a snap poll uh, on Twitter right this moment. Uh, Twitter.com forward slash Gav Riley or on the record NT is our hashtag. A snap poll which is going to close before the show is finished today. I need before this newspaper wrap is finished. Uh, would the Robert Troy story have been quite as politically damaging if it occurred outside of August? Uh, yes, no, or then is an option as well which you can just see the answers if you don't want to participate. Uh, that's on Twitter and it's open for the next uh, eight, seven or eight minutes I think uh, before we finish this hour. Uh, so do let us know. That's where you're going to find it. Uh, Gina London and Tanya Ward are still with us uh, in studio um, Tanya there's a piece on the front page of the Sunday Times which makes for um, pretty stark reading and I'm sure something which um, given your own role with the Children's Rights Alliance would have been um, pretty significant um, about the number of under 18s who have been charged with sexual offences in Ireland which has doubled in the past decade and one charity which deals with child victims of sexual assaults uh, reporting that nearly a quarter of the cases that it handles uh, involves a juvenile being the accused as well that's pretty shocking it's shocking, isn't it? Um, I mean, the, the numbers reported are small. You know, 51 in 2011 and it goes up to 102 um, in, in 2021. And, and, you know... That doesn't surprise me at all because the numbers of children in the country have increased, right? But alongside that is, you know, there's there's more. It, it's not a, it's not an indicator that there's more assaults happening against children. It's probably an indicator that children are are more able to come forward and and say this has happened to me. And I suppose one of the things that really concerns me and a lot of us that work in this space and, and me as a parent, to be honest, there is a big issue for children, young people, when it comes to consent. I mean, the studies are telling us there's a, a Galway based study where it said 20% of 50 year boys thought it was OK to assault another another person. What percentage? Sorry, 50, uh, 20%. Uh, it was OK to assault another person if uh, they didn't give consent. And if you look at the stats then at university level, it's a similar, similar figures. So it's telling you something. It's telling you there's been a failure uh, when it comes at the education level and when it comes to our at the parenting level to talk to our children about what is appropriate when it comes to sexual behaviour. I mean, if you look at the stats, if you had Nolene Blackwell here from the Rape Crisis Centre, she'd tell you that half of all their clients uh, were assaulted as a child and it's about half of them again, it'll turn out to be it was, it was another young person that had assaulted them. So it's a significant issue and it happen, It does happen at that age. And it's, it's a symptom of, I suppose, our failure to educate our children, and young people about what is appropriate behaviour um, when, when it comes to sexual interest in another person. And it's also about, I think, us as parents, you know, being able to talk about these things as well. And, at the, and, and underlying all that is the exposure to what they're getting online in terms of pornography and things like that and, and what the new norm is. All mm. of that is in the mix. So it's telling us you have to address it through education. So Minister for Education has a new curriculum that she's proposing. Um, a lot of work has been done by the NCCA and they're saying they're going to actually go after this. They're going to deal with consent. They're going to deal with relationships. They're going to deal with uh, the fact that young people are, are, are exposed to so much pornography. Uh, but it also goes down to, I think, um, to us as parents and, and being able to have that discussion and dialogue with the children in their lives. Mm. And, you know, there's a big job to be done with regulating the online world, but, we're you know, we're years away from that. Well, one, sorry, Jean, sorry I was just going to add real quickly one thing that, that Tanya was alluding to, and just to build on that and make it, make it very clear that the numbers, while are actually still relatively small from 50 to over a little over 100, 
that the indicators, I think, also are that the awareness of what assault is, an awareness that I can come forward as a victim and, and claim this, or I can tell my parents, I'm aware of what, I think that's increased, which also could be an indicator of why these numbers have increased. And actually, that in some ways is a good thing, if that makes any sense, because the number 51 from 10 years ago doesn't necessarily indicate there were only 51. It means there were only 51 that were charged. Yeah. And that, I think there's a lot more to unpack yeah. on that. Certainly, I know at my own daughter, who's 14, going into third year, her school is very, I, we, first of all, she and I have very open communication about every aspect. Any question she has deserves an honest and thoughtful discussion. But her school, I think, is very, very, takes it to the, the smallest, even a, a reference of a potential. I, I can quick anecdote that there was a, a child, a kid, because mm. we're not children really at 15, 14, who'd made a, an improper reference about my daughter that was overheard by another kid. And that kid what, did a smart thing, because they talk a lot about you're a bystander or you're an upstander. And I like that distinction. That's the messaging that's happening at mm. that school. And that kid that overheard the flip remark, mm. frankly, but it was disturbing language. And the kid went back and told a teacher and the junior principal actually contacted me directly, privately. Actually, I've never actually shared this discussion with my daughter because he asked me not to. We're handling it. Here's what's going on. Yeah. We want you to know that was her parent. This was said. It was just talk. Mm. But it was taken that seriously. And I think that's the level that will yeah. mm. bring those numbers back down. Talk more, make it open, build that awareness of those numbers of yeah. boys that say that they think assault is they don't maybe even know what mm. assault is, yeah. but to make it serious at that early stage so it doesn't get to something more serious. It does lead for kind of an interesting or fascinating uh, parenting quandary is to if you become aware of a circumstance like that, but it all happens behind your own child's back and they're almost unaware that it happened. So this was a remark made by a boy, uh, which was about your daughter, but Correct. which was overheard by someone else and Correct. not by her. And they brought it to the school authorities who brought it to you. It yes. kind of then almost begs the question as to, like, do you raise it with your own kid or do you, would, is ignorance case more blissful? By, case by case situation. And because of all the circumstances that were around this particular situation, which I obviously won't go into, I made the decision not to bring it back to her. Now, if any of her friends are listening her, mm. to or this thing, listening, that I'm yeah. going to have a discussion. <laughs> yeah. I guarantee she's sleeping and not listening okay, to right. this I was going to say, yeah, it's not an unreasonable time for Gina's daughter to be listening, but yeah, maybe, no, maybe, yeah, maybe at that yeah. age that she's, she's uh, <laughs> still in bed. Two o'clock is when they're rolling out of bed. <laughs> uh, one thing that strikes me about the, the general phenomenon, though, um, Tanya, is that I think often if education is the response system for people to understand what is acceptable behaviour, even just what's acceptable passive commentary and what isn't, that the education has to acknowledge the fact that teenagers and young people these days are much more sexualized than probably a lot of their parents are yeah. are comfortable with. And I always think that some, sometimes the world is in denial about how sexualized their worlds are and that you're never really going to tackle it head on because people would like to think, oh, you know, of course, there's of course there's porn out there, but not my Johnny, not my Mary. And yeah, they like yeah. to pretend that it doesn't affect their kid. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 then I think those parents need to see the stats of <laughs> what, what, the, what their children have been exposed to. Yeah. Come because... on. The longest river in the world is denial. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because yeah. yeah. to, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I think as parents, it, it's one of the things we have to deal with. You might not have grown up in that generation, you know, your exposure to pornography might have been in someone's, you know, bedroom or scene or it might have been in a shop on the top shelf. But unfortunately, you know, these online platforms have saturated it with pornography. And not only that, they have algorithms that are driving children towards more extreme content. So you don't have a choice really as a parent. Like your child, if they look into something about dieting very quickly, they're going to be exposed to stuff on pro-anorexia. 
if they look into right all of that that's mm. the route because these companies haven't been held to account they don't have regulations in place to prevent them from doing that that is all on the cards and it's along the way but that's the reality of what your child is being exposed to at this moment in time so it's just something you're going to have to get to grips with but the other thing about it is you know all the studies show is Every child is different. So even though if you've been exposed to violence or extreme pornography, you may not be as disturbed as as another child. But the studies do show the younger you are at your level of exposure, the more likely you are to be disturbed and affected Mm -hmm. by it. So it's telling you as a parent, you know, you need to be more on top of things, particularly when they're younger. And you also need to know your child as well, because you might have, I mean, there's a woman called Sonia Livingston in the UK. She's done amazing work in this area and she's done loads of consultations with young people. And she said she met 11 year olds who knew the ins and outs of Cambridge Analytica, who interfered with the Brexit vote. And and then she met 16 year olds who were, you know, sharing huge volumes of personal information that was clearly going to affect how they were being perceived by their friends, but Mm -hmm. also their employment prospects down the road. And it really depends on your child. You really have to know your child and what's best for them and work with them on that. Yeah, and people not realising maybe the permanence of, of what they put out there and they think that it's kind of fleeting or that it's only with someone else but it still lives on some server somewhere. Um, the poll has closed about whether the Robert Troy story would have been quite as damaging if it occurred outside of August. I see uh, Jean is sitting up now on Do tell. Well, so no. um, nearly, f- nearly 15% of people didn't actually want to vote. They just wanted to see the answers. Uh, 27.2% of people said no, it would not have been as damaging. 58% of people said yes, it would have been just as damaging if it occurred at any other time. Stephen says would have been the same result maybe just accelerated dull statement would have just sped up the news cycle Jerry says why wouldn't it the concept of a silly season is outdated just because the doll isn't sitting doesn't mean that the government stops and Kit says would it have got as much traction if his admissions had appeared in a list of all of those similarly afflicted if there was if it was just buried in a list of other people who also had to make addendums to their, their I like doll that record. point I like that point yeah. it agrees with my point so I like that point uh, but uh, the people have scientifically spoken so I, I defer yeah uh, and there are of course some people who are entitled to who are uh, questioning the validity of the question at all they, they want to know why the Tisha Cantonista uh, supported Robert Troy despite his uh, as one person says his squalid lack of principle so much wow, for standards in public squalid. office uh, we're talking a bit more about that with Roderick O'Gorman after the news at 12 and I'm going to have to let the two of you go thank you both very much for coming in this morning to, to go through uh, today's Sunday papers with us Gina London who is a, an international communication strategist and trainer former CNN correspondent and Tanya Ward who is chief executive of the Children's Rights Alliance On the Record with Gavin Riley Sunday morning at 11 Brought to you by PwC Combining talent and technology We're hardwired to find solutions It all adds up to the new equation On News Talk